This is Basketball U. On Chicago's Home for Sports, ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. What's up and welcome in. It's a fresh episode of Basketball U here on the ESPN Chicago app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tyler Rocky. Be sure to rate, download, and subscribe to the show. We love having all the feedback. Drop a review as well. We love talking all things college hoops with you. And be sure to tell all of your college basketball-loving friends as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Tyler Aki underscore love talking college basketball with you guys when there isn't a podcast coming out that day. On today's show, we're going to talk with Jordan Cornett. Talk a little bit about Mike Bray and him stepping down from the Notre Dame program at the end of the season. Also, we'll get you a new top 12 as well. And there are some fun headlines this week. Um, so we will go through some of the, the big stories from the week, some of the, the ancillary stuff in college basketball. All right, so big news coming out of South Bend last week with the announcement of the retirement of the winningest coach in the program's history, Mike Bray. So what better time to bring on our former teammate at ESPN 1000 and always a friend of the station as well and the all-time leader in shots blocked at Notre Dame, Jordan Cornett from ESPN, joining us here on Basketball You, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us today. Tyler, it's a pleasure to be on with you, my man. It's always good to be a part of the ESPN 1000 family, even if it's for uh, 15 minutes here or there. <laughs> Well, we love having you. We miss having you around all the time. So, all right, you played for Mike Bray. I just want to kind of rewind, all right, get into the mindset of 17, 18-year-old Jordan Cornette here, all right? What drew you to want to play for Mike Bray? Uh, you know, for one, it was Tyler's commitment to Notre Dame, the university. I mean, I initially committed to Matt Doherty, uh, who was then the head coach. He did one season there, did a really good job turning that thing around. It had been – uh, quite frankly, a bad program for a decade. And uh, I committed to him because I committed to the university. I saw the opportunity for a program that was going places. Doherty told me the only way he'd leave is if the Carolina job became available. Nobody ever thought that was going to happen, and it did. And when it did, they brought in this guy, Mike Bray, who the big claim to fame was, yeah, he'd done a lot of Delaware, which is where he was coming from, but he coached under Coach K at Duke for some of those big-time uh, teams with Grant Hill, Christian Leitner. I mean, you name it. He won national championships as an assistant, so I knew he had the pedigree. And when I met him, he was so disarming, so charismatic, but had a plan for how he wanted to use me. The engagement with him felt right, even more so than Doherty. So it just seemed natural for me to jump in. How hard did he try to sway you to stay? Because oftentimes when you see those coaching changes, it's all right. Do we want to keep this guy who's already been committed to the program? Are we going to go after some of our own guys? But what was his pitch to you exactly when when you were having those conversations? His pitch to me was he was going to use me in the vein that Matt Doherty was if I wanted to, which is going to be uh, stay as like a, a three guard, a slim three guard. Or he said, you know, you can jump in right away. And I've kind of got a system where I want to play five guys out and you can be uh, put a little bit more bulk on and be a hybrid four, still keep those guard like skills, but be good enough to defend down low. And so that translated to me being able to play as a freshman. I played about 15 minutes a year as a freshman and incrementally that grew. So he didn't promise me opportunity, but he laid out a path. And if I was willing to work, uh, that would provide itself. And it did. So I was all about, you know, staying committed to the course. And I was a big believer in Bray, and he didn't let me down. 
What was what led to some of that instant success? Because he gets there and it's a couple NCAA tournaments in a row, which sometimes you don't always see, especially at a high major program like Notre Dame was at the Big East at the time. But what led to some of that instant success with him coming from a, a smaller school in Delaware? He, he lacked an ego. And when he came in, he saw the pieces he had in that first year, the year that was predated me. He had a, a one year under his belt with a really talented group that won a uh, Big East division uh, championship. That's when the Big East was split up. Uh, got to the tournament for the first time in 11 years. He came in and said, I'm not going to use my brand. I'm going to adjust to who these guys are. I've got Troy Murphy. I've got Ryan Humphrey. I've got Dave Graves, Matty Carroll, Harold Swanigan, Martin Inglesby. I've got an old group. You guys show me the way. I'll learn. And as we grow together, we'll win a lot of games. In Talking to those guys that were on that team the year before me, those guys became my captains when I came in. They appreciated that a lot about coach. Is they they coach allowed them to lead, and he took a back seat. A lot of coaches don't do that, but that was who Coach Bray was. He could get into a room, read a room, and say, "Okay, how do I navigate this thing?" And he was as good as that, as good at that as anybody I know. And I think that's what led him to the historic success and ultimately becoming the winningest coach. He had the feel for each unit every single season. So he has that that instant success, and then it's you get to 2015, 2016. That was sort of the peak of his time at Notre Dame, the back-to-back Elite Eights. But what did you see from being an alum of the program at that time? What did you see in terms of how he built the program up to where it was, where they were able to be in the conversation to make deep tournament runs year after year? Tyler, I'd say it's probably one of his most impressive uh, things on his resume is the ability to recruit to Notre Dame. It's no surprise. Notre Dame, I mean, it's no surprise, no secret to anybody, I should say. Notre Dame's a football school. <clears throat> Notre Dame's also in South Bend, not South Beach. It's not necessarily a destination for a lot of people. It's dark from the minute you get on campus pretty much to the minute you leave for the summer, if you do, in fact, leave for the summer. So there are a lot of challenges, the academic side of it. Uh, the facilities weren't up to snuff. Coach's ability to get the talent in there to sustain the run that he did for 23 years, which saw uh, several tournament bursts, which saw several 20-win seasons, which saw uh, a couple Sweet 16s, a couple back-to-back Elite 8s, an ACC championship in 2015. I was just watching this documentary. Funny enough, we're talking today, Tyler, this morning. It popped on Showtime. It's called Hoops U. It followed Maryland, Notre Dame, and maybe another program. But it was behind the scenes of the 2015 season, the season that Notre Dame won the ACC championship. And on that roster was Jaron Grant, who was at that point a National Player of the Year candidate, uh, nephew of the great Horace Grant, son of Harvey Grant, uh, Pat Connaughton, who's won a championship in the NBA, Bonzi Colson, who's making a ton of money overseas, Demetrius Jackson, who was a first-round draft pick. We're not talking about Duke. We're not talking about Arizona. We're not talking about UCLA. We're talking about Notre Dame, and it speaks to coach went out and got high-level talent. He did it the right way. Coach didn't have a bad guy. Right. Coach didn't have any of that stuff. Coach didn't have much to boast about in terms of facilities. But yet he got guys that fit his system that were high-quality, high-character guys. All those guys I mentioned beyond their talent are great guys. That's how you build a program. you got to be able to get talent, but you've got to be able to get the right type of talent that also intersects with high character. And he managed to find that secret sauce with those guys and really build an impressive program. 
You, you know, he had my favorite quote of the entire summer when there's this whole new era of NIL, the transfer portal, and all these coaches, you see him come out and say, oh, there's no rules, there's no regulation, this is bad, we need... We need help with this. We need help with that. It's there's this is out of control. But he was the one that came out and said, shut up and adjust. And I feel like that's sort of like the the coach Bray that you know and that a lot of college basketball learned to know. Well, it makes me laugh, Tyler, because he said shut up and adjust and he left. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah, he said, Yeah, adjust. Good luck adjusting, by the way, because I'm out of here. And I don't think NIL is what drove coach out. I, I say mm-hmm. that in jest, but you mentioned that because it speaks to who he is. He came in and said, oh, Notre Dame football school? Oh, Notre Dame, all those things I mentioned that would be disadvantages for most. He said, got to adjust, got to lean in. And his vibe was, which I thought was brilliant. I mean, he's a DMV guy. He's from that D.C. Yeah. area, went to DeMatha. That pipeline is well-documented. Uh, that has been a huge part of Notre Dame's success going back to Digger Phelps. He said coming in, he's like, I, I just felt like it was an East Coast gig. And I know it was in the middle of nowhere in, in Northwest Indiana. But it was at the Big East. So I was playing at Georgetown. I was playing at Seton Hall. I was playing at, you know, uh, then Rutgers, all these other, you know, schools, UConn, Providence. I felt like I was on the East Coast. So I said, hey, I'm going to recruit recruit East Coast guys because we're spending the whole winter there anyway. So it was his mindset. He was able to get into this mindset of, hey, guys, like, this is all gravy. And he was so good at relating to guys one-on-one in groups I mean, he was a guy in a group that that would people gravitate towards conversationally, always had a joke. I keep using the word disarming because that's who coach was. So in high tense moments, he could always get us to relax and go play. He always had a message leading into a game like we're road dogs. We're on a road. It's us against everybody. Or, you know, you guys aren't worthy. We're a poor team. You don't get to use the locker room. We're going to let the normal students, the undergrads use it. You'll use the rec locker room for the week. He just had ways to motivate us, ways to engage us, ways to get us, <clears throat> excuse me, ways to get us to focus that were uh, uncanny, really. So why do you think now is the time for him to step away? Because 63 years old, which in the world of college basketball coaches isn't that old. I mean, especially you look in the ACC, what we saw, how long Roy and Kay did it. Bayheim's still going. Leonard Hamilton's still going. All those guys were in their 70s. Why now for Bray at 63? Right now at 63 for Bray, it's time at Notre Dame. I mean, he's the winningest coach. I I really, Tyler, don't know what else he could have done. He rode out with an old senior class here uh, that he had high expectations for, quite frankly, and thought, hey, maybe this group can sneak into an Elite Eight and maybe get to that Final Four that's eluded him. Uh, And it didn't happen. And and so, like all great ones, you understand that, that when the time is to walk away, Two tournament wins out of nowhere last year after they caught lightning in a bottle. And he even alluded to it. Maybe he should have walked away then, but he wanted to stay loyal to this group and see what they could max out. He called it this last dance, comparing it to the Chicago Bulls. Clearly, this group isn't the Chicago Bulls, (laughs) but it was along the lines of, let's see what we got this last year. Let's see how it plays out. Coach knew coming into the year that this was going to be it. I I mean, the the cupboard was going to be empty after this. Now, look, you got J.J. Starling. Vin, uh, Vin Allen Lubin is a heck of a talent, but this is the perfect transition breakoff time. And I say this is time at Notre Dame because I can see Coach getting back into the profession at, at another place. Uh, he is 63. He's got a lot of good basketball in him. That's a young 63 for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see him getting into TV. I could see him retiring and enjoying his grandchildren down there with his son Kyle Bray, who's coaching football. 
down in Florida. Beauty of it is Coach has done such a great job. He's got options. He's right. got options, and there's a lot of people that want him in various degrees and various career paths and choices because of the job he's done at Notre Dame. But no question, he maxed out at Notre Dame, overachieved beyond belief. Guy's a freaking all-time winningest coach. Digger Phelps is Notre Dame basketball. Somehow, Coach Bray managed to get up to that level, which is incredible. I mean, I think in a dream world for him, he becomes the tournament director for the Maui Invitational. So he can just wear his Hawaiian shirts and lays all the time and sit back. If he's back. even wearing a shirt, right? right I mean, exactly. he's shirt off now. Who knows? That's right. Exactly. Um, okay. One of the other things that you, you brought it up a little bit earlier, but he was an assistant under K. Do you think he wanted that Duke job when it became open? Because he was one of those guys who you always heard his name, but it never felt like he was one of the top three or four candidates there. But you always heard his name as sort of a dark horse guy to keep an eye on. I don't think he was ever seriously considered. And I think it was because of not because of a lack of relationship. I mean, him and Coach K have a very strong relationship. He he used a lot of Coach K's ideals and brought them to Notre Dame. Uh, but covering the ACC and covering Duke – Coach K was always going to have it be one of his guys. And Coach Bray had detached for so long and had built his own thing and became his own enterprise, his own entity. It wouldn't have felt like it had been one of Coach K's guys at that point. There was such a more immediate tree uh, to choose from, guys who were a little bit closer in that circle still. And so that's why Coach Bray was never really going to get the consideration. It wasn't because of pedigree or resume. It was simply because – he had gone further on and it's detached himself more from the Duke family. I think for coach, the only thing that's alluring to him now in the coaching world would be something in the DMV area. That's what I truly believe. Interesting. Uh, so um, you look at your time with Bray too. Do you have like a favorite trip that you remember taking with coach Bray? I don't know what kind of like uh preseason or pre-conference tournaments you guys did, but do you have a favorite trip that you remember with him? Uh, I, I think the, the favorite trip with Coach would have been – it's a great question, Tyler. There's been so many different experiences, and I've got to you know do it as player and uh, as a guy who served as a radio color commentator for them and traveled with them for a lot of years. But I'd look back on a three-game stretch in 2003 where we were down and playing in the BB&T Classic down in the DMV area, and you got a sense of – just how much he meant to that area, you know, a disciple mm -hmm. and, and played for the great uh, Morgan Wooten, Coach Morgan Wooten, rest in peace. And you just saw, like, Coach Bray has a following. We went down there and we beat Texas, who went to the Final Four that year, who was top 10. Mm -hmm. A day later, we beat a, a top 10 Maryland team. Uh, and it was really cool because we won that classic. We then flew home, and Coach had us focus. He had us loose. He said, you know, we got Dwayne Wade and Marquette coming in now uh, two days later. So don't get rich and fat off what we've done here. And he managed to have his focus to, on Big Monday, Dwayne Wade in that group comes into a pack house at the Purcell Pavilion. I still call it the Jack. Mm -hmm. And we had just beaten two top 10 teams. And uh, D-Wade and them come in, and we steamroll. We beat three top 10 teams in a span of five days. That had never been done in college basketball. I don't know if it still has ever been achieved. Um, but it just spoke to, like, coaches had us loose. I, I think about moments like that because – Coach never let the highs be too high, and he never let the lows be too low. He just knew how to navigate his group. And so I think back on times like that that were a lot of fun. I laugh about the losses because Coach wouldn't say a word on a plane when we'd lose. Um, but one of the things that also stands out, Tyler, is when we traveled, he treated us as men. I mean, because he recruited high-quality, high-character guys. There weren't bed checks. 
Uh, you know, there wasn't any of this. Now make sure you stay out of trouble. If we wanted to go see the city while we were out there, good. Just make sure you handle your business when it comes time to. And we did for my four years. I mean, I played on some really good teams. I would argue my sophomore year team and maybe even my freshman year team were two of the best teams he ever had there. I only think of the 2015 and 16 teams being better. Um, so, yeah, I just the way he handled us, I always admire that because he did the work ahead of time with the personnel he brought in to then trust us when we were traveling. So looking at the vacancy to be now with this job, who do you feel like are, are some names that are in the running that would be attractive for Notre Dame? Uh, I, I would say, and it speaks to what the job coach has done, there's a long list, and there's people who would really want the job. And I couldn't have said that before Bray got there. I mean, this, this, this program was in a gutter. I mean, it was 10 years of irrelevance, uh, but he's generated a standard. I mean, that's not as appealing because now people expect you to take that water, turn it into wine. But with the facilities, with the recent history, uh, it's not water anymore. It, it is uh, got that wine vibe to it. That being said, I'd love to see it be somebody who – uh, is in Coach's tree. As you talk about uh, the legend Roy Williams, as you talk about the legend uh, Mike Krzyzewski, those guys earn the right to say, this is who I want. And, and Coach and win as much as legends like Roy and Kay, but he's our Roy and Kay. He's a legend at Notre Dame. He's a heavyweight in this, in this basketball world. He's a titan. He has a right to pick. And so I do hope that it's somebody within his circle. that come Guys come to mind like Chris Quinn, uh, Martin Inglesby, Colin Moose, who's over at Delaware. Uh, if it stays in the Notre Dame family, not necessarily a descendant of coach, but if Monty Williams in a dream world decided, you know, he, he's over the NBA, that's a stretch. But those are three guys within the Notre Dame family that come to mind. If you want to still kind of stay in the Notre Dame family, Fran McCaffrey at Iowa, it, it has that, that vibe to him. having been an assistant at Notre Dame for Digger. And uh, I think even years after, but has that background. Um, so so those are names that jump off right away. But if you go outside of Notre Dame, Pat Kelsey uh, is a great name. Dennis Gates is a great name. Uh, Chris Holtman, if he's tired of Ohio State, is a great name. Um, there's a lot of guys out there that make a lot of sense, but I would love to see it be uh, a guy I have a direct relationship with, and that's several on that list. Now, before I let you go, big Bengals fan. Big Sir. win this past weekend, and you got another big game coming up this weekend. How, how you feeling about your Bengals going into another matchup against Mahomes? House money, man. <laughs> if my quarterback's going to be the coolest guy in the world, then I got to follow his lead. There's no nerves, man. We've gone in there, and we've made it Burrowhead Stadium once before, so why not again? Uh, this is a group that just finds ways. Uh, a ton of weapons. Uh, defensively, we're really good. Our offensive line. Uh, well documented that, you know, this group is underperformed and now severely injured, but did the job in Buffalo. I think the weather is going to be very much like it was in Buffalo, uh, which I, I think given how we played out there bodes well for us. I feel great, man. I, I just what a time to be alive. I joked <laughs> about this on social media. My son, Joey, is turning two in April. All he knows is AFC championships. It'd be incredible for him to all he knows is Super Bowls and maybe get one of those here. Uh, but it's a really cool time for a franchise that has been so bad for a long time. Marvin Lewis elevated it, and Zach Taylor's taking it to another level. It's really cool. Man, your, your son, he's almost raised like a Boston fan, it feels like. All he knows is, is getting to the, the we'll AFC Championship. We're, not, we're not obnoxious like the Boston fans. <laughs> yeah, not yet, at least. Jordan, appreciate you taking some time with me today. A lot of fun, a lot of, uh, a lot of cool stuff that you had to bring to the table there with Mike Bray, and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. 
Tyler, I appreciate it, man. Give my best to the guys back there, Carm, Waddle, Sylvie, Cap Hoodie, all those guys. Love them. Uh, Black Adala, all my guys. Always fun talking hoops with Jordan. He is fantastic, does great work in studio, on games with ESPN, one of the best analysts that you get in the sport. So always a pleasure talking with him. All right, let's get into some of the headlines from this week in the college basketball world. Uh, First, I guess this is more of a a prep basketball, but still a story nonetheless here. Bronny James, not only was he named a McDonald's All-American this past week, but also recently confirmed to the LA Times who his top three schools are. Of course, the son of LeBron James. He has confirmed his top three schools go Oregon, USC, and Ohio State, which to some may sound like a bit of an odd trio to have as his final three, but it kind of makes sense if you get inside of the head of, of Bronny James here. Oregon, Obviously, the big ties to Nike, right? That's who his dad has been uh, endorsing and, and has created his own brand through for a number of years now, um, ever since he came into the NBA. So it makes a lot of sense there. The Nike ties are strong and would not shock me to see him at Oregon. The other one, uh, USC, which... Los Angeles, just stay home for a year. Your dad can get to some of your games as well. So USC, I guess, makes a lot of sense as well. And it's it's a Nike school, and it's not the Jordan brand school in town if you're picking between USC and UCLA. So makes sense that he would opt for a USC there. And then the last one, Ohio State, which probably made the most sense to people that were following uh, LeBron James and Bronny James. It seemed like that was a school that... Uh, LeBron James would have went to back in the day, and obviously he claims Ohio State, and Ohio State's always been a big LeBron school as well in terms of the way that they outfit their players and apparel and all that stuff as well. So Bronny James having a top three. I believe a lot of the crystal balls have come in that he will go to um, Ohio State. That's what Rivals currently has it pegged at right now. Um, On three, another great uh, recruiting site that uh, dabbles with a lot of NIL stuff too that's another thing i'm going to be very intrigued to see what his nil figure is going to be when it's all said and done because you'd imagine he'll be one of the three highest paid not just in college basketball but really in the entirety of college athletics you'd imagine he will be in the top three there but in terms of what his outlook is and it kind of goes to the mcdonald's all-american conversation if you go to 27 24-7 sports, and where you find Bronny James, he checks in at 34, which is a little out of the range of where you find a lot of McDonald's All-Americans. Usually, McDonald's All-Americans are top 25 players, and you got Bronny James here checking in at 34, but it makes sense for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the, the name brand helps in this case, but I think you, you look at the way that a lot of recruiting and, and high school analysts have have looked at Bronny James and what he did last summer on the, the Peach Jam circuit and in some of the biggest tournaments. He has really shown out in a lot of these big-time showcases. And you got to remember, not only does he have uh, a target on his back because of the opponent, but what about the, the pressure that he goes into every single game as the kid of LeBron James? Um I remember I watched him at a an AAU tournament when he must have been in in seventh or eighth grade at the time, and I was like, you know, I don't know if this Bronny James is going to be a guy that 
is an NBA player because in a seventh and eighth grade tournament, you just expect a future NBA player to be dominating in this thing and be one of the best players on the court. But I mean, he was maybe the third best player on his team. And again, I only watched a, a one game sample here. Um, but just from watching the, that one game, it was I could kind of see like he was the, the he was like the the third best player on the team at the time, and just to see the way that he's sort of grown and um, kind of handled through all the pressure. I mean, this was when he was in seventh eighth grade, and there was a, a swarm of people sitting around an AAU gym in Charlotte, North Carolina, to watch Bronny James play. So. It's cool to see what he's done, and uh, it'll be interesting because I look at, I mean, you think about LeBron James, too, how he went straight to the pros, right? He didn't wait around and and go to college for a year and do the one-and-done thing. Um, He went straight to the pros, and that, to a degree, is an option for Bronny James if he wanted to go to the Overtime League, if he wanted to go to G League Ignite, because all those, all those programs would love to have a Bronny James because of the profile that it builds for those leagues. Now, um, I, I look at what he's doing, and it, by all intents and purposes, it seems like he is going to go to college, and whether or not he's going to be ready for to be a one-and-done, I think he's still going to try to go down that path, and and LeBron will will find a way to to get him into the league, whether or not he's ready. But it seems like every step of the way he has been ready. So um, he would obviously be a, a big addition to some of those classes in USC. That that's an interesting one for me because they have the number one player in the country right now in Isaiah Collier. So it would be interesting to pair Bronny James with the number one player in the country and sort of make USC basketball must-see TV every single night. But we will wait and see. He's going to make his decision at the end of his senior season. I'd imagine at one of these showcases you'll see a Bronny James decision down the way. Uh, Another big story. This came uh, actually last night in the world of college basketball. Remember Amani Bates? Do you remember Monty Bates, former number one player in the country? He goes to Memphis and he struggles, has the back injury. I say in air quotes, back injury there. Um, But Amani Bates, last night, the performance he put on, he transfers to Eastern Michigan over the the offseason. And last night in a loss against, um, against Toledo, he scores 29 straight points, 43 points for the night, 15 of 23. But in the first in the first half, he scored 27 of Eastern Michigan's 35 points. He was on a tear, and he was just kind of hitting step-back threes. It was a heat check sort of night for him. Uh, ends up going 9 of 14 from three. But it was cool. He's had a couple of these moments this season. There was the, the game against Michigan earlier this year. And he also shined in that one as well. And you can tell in some of these games, it just looks like he's having fun playing basketball. And last night was one of those instances. The Michigan game earlier this year was one of those instances. But to go from a former number one overall recruit in a as a reclassifying guy, too, no less, to now playing at Eastern Michigan, I don't think that's the track anyone thought Imani Bates was headed down when he did enter the world of college basketball. Um, he drew some praise from LeBron James last night on Twitter. Um, the, pretty much everyone was was buzzing about him on social media last night. But it was a lot of fun. 
to watch and, and just to see him having fun too i think was was really refreshing and cool to see for amani bates so 43 points including 29 straight points you don't see that you sometimes you'll see a player go on an eight point run um but 29 straight and again it makes sense he plays for eastern michigan he's by far and away the most talented player on the team but he went he went ballistic last night and it was cool to see um this was from monday night first big monday game of the year and it was between Virginia Tech and Duke. And I I don't know how I don't think I've really ever seen this go to the the monitor for for a game like this, but at the end of the game, very, very controversial play when uh, Michael Collins hits a big shot on the go-ahead bucket with 13 seconds left. He turns up court and does one of those fist pumps as he's turning up court and just inadvertently sucker punches Duke's Kyle Filipowski right in the throat. It was a, a clean, hard punch right to the throat. And it, it was all by accident because he was celebrating in the heat of the moment. And they go to the monitor to review whether or not it should be a flagrant foul. And it, listen, like I get it's... It's a a moment of celebration, and that ultimately is what they decided upon, is that since it was a dead ball situation and a moment of celebration, there was no call to be made. But even me, and you and my my thoughts on, on the Duke program are well documented, maybe because of the predecessor more so than the current man at head coach, but that is a flagrant foul in every situation. I mean, you think back to, to Carlos Boozer, too. I mean, obviously nothing was called in the Boozer situation when he turns around and 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 punches a, a ref below the belt in, in, in the jewels right there, a place you don't want to be punched in. Um, and, and the Adam's apple certainly is also a, one of those places on the body you would like to not be punched in. I think you just like to not be punched in general. I think if you're not getting punched, that's usually a good time. Um but I don't know how this didn't end up as a flagrant foul. I get the the rationale from the referees in that it was inadvertent, but we see way too much stuff that's called for inadvertent contact that goes down as a flagrant. You, you can't you, you can't pick and choose here, and this is an instance where picking and choosing was done. And the the punch was even though it was inadvertent, I think it needed to be called a, a flagrant foul. But that maybe maybe this is just some Grayson Allen uh, Grayson Allen karma right here. He he got away with all that stuff in college and now in the pros and now it's coming to bite Duke back. So maybe that's what that is. All right, let's get into actually um, one one last quick thought here. And, and later on in the week, I am going to put out a second episode this week because the SEC Big Twelve Challenge has quickly become one of my favorite events that college basketball puts on. And this year is certainly going to be no exception to that. Um, and I, I'm going to rank all the SEC Big 12 matchups for this year. But for the SEC-ACC challenge, which is set to, to come up next year, I don't know if they've released when those games are going to be played. Like you think about the SEC Big 12 and it's coming here in winter in the, the heat of, of conference play, whereas the Big 10 ACC challenge, that always took place in late November or like one of the first couple of days in December. 
in the, the pre-conference times, I actually like this challenge happening when it's happening with the SEC Big 12 in the winter during conference play because I think it makes the games mean more. Whereas in the Big 10 ACC, let's be honest, like we're at a point in, in college basketball now where pretty much anything before the month of – pretty much anything before the new year doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot for seeding, whereas these games will matter. And you get a fuller form of these teams as well. I think you look at some of the the teams that we saw. I mean, Baylor's, I think, a, a great example of this, a team who struggled a little bit at the beginning of, of Big 12 play, but now you're kind of getting the true sense of Baylor. And I'll talk about them a little bit when we get to our top 12 here. A little, little teaser for you there, but... Um, you're getting the best form of Baylor. You're getting the best form of a team like TCU who suffered a really bad loss early on but has now figured things out. You're getting the best form of a team like like Alabama even. I mean, this is peak Alabama. I want to see what they look like going up against some of these big 12 teams. So I want to see that as opposed to a game that's largely a throwaway when it comes to NCAA tournament seeding. I think th- these games mean a lot more. And I would like to see that with the SEC and ACC challenge moving forward. I'm not sure when they're going to play those games on the calendar yet, but that I would like to see it during this portion. And I know, I think coaches would like it too because it doesn't put a lot of league stress, but it also puts a little bit of tournament significance and resume building significance on it as well. And I think it's just great in general for the sport too. But I will, I will rank all the SEC Big 12 games in terms of which games I'm most excited for coming up. Uh, I'll do that tomorrow or Friday and, and have that out for you guys then. All right. Let's get into the top 12 as we start with Arizona, who after a big win against UCLA, they are back in the top 12 at number 12. Um, Their defense was fantastic. They held the Bruins to 52 points, and in a win right before that, USC, they held them to 66 points. Listen, this is the, the top one of the top offenses in the country right now, and if they play offense like this or defense like this I should say if they're playing defense like this they're going to continue to be in this top 12 here because of the way that they can score their their defense has bumped up I think I've at times I've told you they've been a top 60 defense now they're sitting at 45th right now the offense actually has taken a, a step back in terms of its efficiency you look at some of their recent games they in the loss to Oregon they scored only 68 points 81 against USC and then only 58 against UCLA in what was really a grinder of a game um, so their offense is now ranked 11th instead of first as it once was but I still believe in the offense long term it's just going to be can the defense hold up their end of the bargain this team feels a lot like in terms of the the composite and the numbers behind it maybe not the personnel as much but the composite of it reminds me a lot of what Purdue was last year what we've seen out of Iowa at times where the offense is so good but the defense has held them back from being a real consistent team and this is just another example of um, one of those games where everything came together for them and it led to a big win. So uh, Arizona, my number 12 team here. Number 11 is where we find my big 12 flavor of the week, and that is the Baylor Bears. You know, they just came off of the big win against Kansas at home on Big Monday. And I saw this stat surfacing on, on social media Um 
I believe it was ESPN Stats and Info put it out. Baylor is now 12-1 and in their last 13 games against top 10 opponents. It's the best record over a 13-game stretch in the AP poll era. What Scott Drew has built and telling his guys, listen, and, he, and listen, a lot of those games have been top 10 matchups where Baylor is also in the top 10 and they have been favored against top 10 teams. But I think that is also a credit to Scott Drew and him getting his guys ready. But 13 games and a 12 and one record in against top 10 opponents is unbelievable. And to see him go out there and, and have his guys ready every single game, even if they are the lower seeded team. And in this case against Kansas, they were that that's phenomenal stuff right there. Only and Baylor right now playing some really good basketball. They're on a five game winning streak. All of those games coming in the big 12. I get four of them have been against uh, four of the worst teams in the big 12, but every game in the big 12 is tough because it is such a compact conference with 10 teams. And on top of that, I mean, every single team in, in the league right now, is in the top 65 on Ken Palm almost every single game except for a home game against Texas Tech is considered a quad one opportunity. So I I look at what Baylor has done in the Big 12, and if you go on a five-game winning streak in the Big 12, I know they stumbled out of the gate 0-3 to start the year in the conference, but you look at some of the teams that they lost to to open up conference play, it was Iowa State, TCU, and Kansas State. Those are good teams right there. And they've certainly shown that they're very good teams within the confines of the Big 12. But if you're going on a, a five-game winning streak in the Big 12, three of which have come on the road for Baylor, which I might add, it's impressive. You deserve all your flowers there. Um, only Baylor and Kansas have a five-game winning streak in the Big 12, which is by far and away the best conference in college basketball and certainly the most competitive conference in college basketball when you go top to bottom. Really not a weak link um, within the, the conference right now. So, Also, the, the big one, in that five-game winning streak was the win against Kansas where they were in control. They were hitting every single three, it felt like, in this game. Anytime Kansas had some sort of counter and started to make things close a little bit like they did out of the gates in that second half, um, Baylor had a response. Uh, LJ Cryer goes 5 of 11 from three. He was unconscious. Um, it says that Baylor was 9 of 30 from three, which is 30%, but that doesn't really tell the full story of how big some of those threes were. Obviously, they started really hot. Cryer began the game five of seven from three, I believe it was. But it just felt like the threes that they were hitting were big threes. They were important threes, and they they stopped a lot of Kansas runs or at least countered them in, imp- in important moments. So that was a, a big, big part of why Kansas was able, or why Baylor rather, was able to win on Big Monday. By the way, little Big Monday gambling tip for you as well. The home teams do really well on these Big Monday games. And you saw it in the first Big Monday of the year last this past a couple days ago. Uh, Virginia Tech takes down Duke at home, even though Virginia Tech was at the time one in six in the conference and Duke by far and away the more talented team. But you saw Virginia Tech was a narrow favorite in that one by two and a half points, and they end up covering that spread and winning outright. Same thing with Baylor. Even though Kansas had the better record, they have, uh, they're have they obviously the defending champions as well. 
But Baylor at home, even though they had the worst record at the time, they were a narrow favorite in that one and end up pulling out the victory. So just a little gambling tip there. If you, you open up your FanDuel app and see that and you're, and you're confused by the line, why is this lesser team a one or two point favorite on Big Monday? Take the home team because it's that quick turnaround from after playing on Saturday usually, and then you have to come around and, and play on a Monday, and you have a travel day on Sunday. So it's really a compact schedule for these guys. It's kind of the it's the closest thing you'll really get, maybe not the closest thing, since uh, the uh, these Feast Week tournaments are back-to-back-to-back, but it's one of the closer things you'll get in college basketball to the back-to-back that you see in the NBA. At least in the NBA, um, or at least in, in the Feast Week tournaments, those are all in the same spot. Whereas in these ones, you've got teams that are traveling. And I think the travel is something that, that hurts some of these teams here. So, um, get, And I, I pulled the numbers from last year. Home teams on Big Monday were 8-4. and four, um, and, and then this year, off, off to a 2-0 and o start. So just a little gambling tip I want everyone to keep in the back of their minds as they're making their wagers this year. All right. Next up, a team that takes a two-spot bump in my rankings. It is Tennessee. I'm a little bit lower on Tennessee right now um, than a lot of places. You know, Ken Palm currently has Tennessee at two, kind of has had Tennessee at two all season. Um, The AP poll has them at four. I'm kind of looking at the Kentucky loss, even though Kentucky has started to play a lot better now and could find themselves in the rankings at some point in the next couple of weeks with the way that they're playing. Um, But that Kentucky loss at home, when you're as big of a favorite as you were against Kentucky and you lose outright, really just get outclassed at home, it's concerning to me. But back-to-back monster road wins, 11-point victory at Mississippi State, and then a 21-point victory against LSU over the weekend. And now you get to return home for Georgia today and then Texas this weekend. I, I like Tennessee. I just don't like them as much as everyone else because the, the offense can get really sleepy at times. Um, and I just want to see how they fare. I, their SEC Big 12 game is one of the more intriguing matchups against Texas this weekend. Obviously, the undertones of Rick Barnes facing his old team as well there. But I need to see more out of the offense because we've seen the the model of defensive Tennessee teams in the past. Just look at last year, and it ended up being a, a second-round exit in the NCAA tournament. They'll, they'll beat the really bad teams in the tournament with this defensive model, but it's going to be can you – can you hang with some of the the power conference teams? And they drew a, an 11 seed last year in Michigan that, again, they were an 11 seed, but they were a power conference team. And when you go up against some of those that have a lot of talent, like Michigan did last season, it can lead to some trouble. And that's why I'm a, still a little concerned, but they do have the number one defense, and they are my number 10 team. Now, this team also has not allowed... 70 points since December 17th. So that's uh, a month and a week of not allowing over 70 points. Last time it came was against Arizona when they were the number one offense in the country and they allowed 75. But um, yeah, that is actually one of just two games where they've allowed over 70 points this year. So impressive stuff for them. And I, I, but I do need to see more offensively from them, but a two spot bump for the Tennessee volunteers. All right, next up, uh, 
We are starting a little bit of a run here on Big 12 teams, and it is the Texas Longhorns. Eight-point win at at West Virginia over the weekend and then handily beating Oklahoma State by 14 last night. They've got a tough, tough slate here ahead for Texas, currently sitting at 17-3. and Really don't have a bad loss this year. Um, They lost on the road at Iowa State, a good team. They lost at home to Kansas State, who's proven to be a good team. And then a neutral site loss against Illinois in overtime at the Garden earlier this year when Illinois was playing some better basketball. But here's the next four for this Texas team. They've got at Tennessee, home against Baylor, at Kansas State, and at Kansas. If you can somehow squeeze out a 2-2 two and two in this stretch, that's beyond successful in, in the eyes of, of mine for, for this Texas team, you, who's already operating with an interim head coach as well. But if you can somehow come out of this 2-2, two and two, then, then Texas is going to prove a lot to me over this next stretch, especially with three of those four games on the road. So Texas... Tough road ahead, but if you can somehow come out 500, that's going to be a, a good one for you, a good stretch for you. All right, next up at the number eight spot is Kansas State. They drop a spot in my rankings after moving up to number five in the overall polls for the AP. Um, not going to penalize them too much for a loss last night against Iowa State. They they lose 80-76 to 76 in a back-and-forth game. That was a lot of fun. But Hilton Magic is Hilton Magic. Can't really penalize you too much for covering on the road there. Um but the the post Big 12 SEC challenge, I mentioned it a little bit with, with Texas, how they've got a tough road. It's kind of the same thing for, for Kansas State here. Yeah, home game against Florida in the Big 12 SEC um, should be able to take care of business there. But then you've got at Kansas, home against Texas, home against TCU. You are at least the beneficiary that a couple of those games are at home. Um, but you could be facing a very, very desperate Kansas team. At that point, if Kansas does lose and extend their losing streak to four this weekend, you could be looking at a team that is in uncharted waters with Bill Self. And Kansas is a team that actually has fallen out of my my top 12 after being uh, way up there last week. What did I have Kansas at last week? Kansas was at five last week, but they've lost back-to-back games. They're on a three-game losing streak right now, which is tied for the longest in Bill Self's history. They play Kentucky this week. Um, this weekend in the Big 12 SEC on the road at Rupp. Um, and if they lose that one, that's going to be the longest losing streak Bill Self has ever had at Kansas. So um, something to watch out for there. So you could be getting Kansas State catching an in-state rival at a very desperate time. You know the fog is going to be rocking for that one too, um, especially after Kansas State beat Kansas in overtime, court storming, all that stuff. Jerome Tang takes the mic, gets up on the scorer's table. So I'm not going to penalize Kansas State too much for the loss. They only drop a spot, but they uh, they have a, a very, very tough road ahead as well. All right, next up, number seven here is TCU. They enter the rankings after picking off back-to-back wins including a absolute thumping on the road over the weekend at Kansas, 83-60. to 60. This game was never in question. I, I looked up all of a sudden during this game. It was on CBS, Ian Eagle, Raff, 
Jay Wright, fantastic crew that they had doing this game. And I look up, and all of a sudden, I see TCU's got 31 points, and there's still over 10 minutes to go in the first half. They were running Kansas out of their own gym. Um, and I, I look at what TCU, I think they were a seven and a half point underdog in this game, but TCU has some really, really impressive road wins this year. They won at Baylor, they won at Kansas. Um, the the home loss against Northwestern State earlier in the year is puzzling, but outside of that, only losses this year are against Iowa State, on the road at Texas, and then on the road at West Virginia. I, I really like their body of work. I, I do have a, a long shot ticket on them to win the whole thing from the preseason. I can't remember exactly. I think my odds are like 40 to 1 or 50 to 1 on TCU. But they were one of my long shots and, and a team that I still would not mind placing a little bit on uh, to go out and and maybe win, um, at least get to the Final Four as well here. I'm going to pull up these, these odds here on FanDuel, see what, what we're looking at for, for TCU right now. But I believe in them. I think they've got a good coach. I think they've got a, a really, really strong uh, guard presence as well with Mike Miles. I mean, that's a guy that can get you 30 points. Uh, but looking right now at the, the odds to reach the Final Four, you got TCU at plus 370. And if you, you want to take them to maybe win the whole thing like I have them, you can still get them at 16 to 1. Don't know if the value is quite there as much anymore, but something worth monitoring as well. And then if you think that they can win the Big 12, they're currently plus 450. And, and that's just the regular season for the Big 12. So you got to take into account what the, the standings look like right now for TCU. And they're currently tied for fourth, but they're just a game back of the, the cluster of Texas, Iowa State, and Kansas State. So um, two great wins, two dominant wins, a 23-pointer at Kansas and a 27-point win against Oklahoma at home. So uh, TCU, they are my number seven team. Um, number six, this is going to make it four Big 12 teams in a row here, but Iowa State taking a four-spot jump in my rankings. Um, this bump is more uh, of a product of who's won and who's lost. You saw a lot of teams lose from a week ago in my, my top 12. Um, but nice win to hold off Kansas State last night. And then two-point loss against Oklahoma State over the weekend. I get it. But I, I, the reason why, even though they go one and one over the, the course of the last week and they are taking as big of a jump as they are, is I want the games to matter and the head-to-head matchups to matter when I make these rankings. And Iowa State, if you kind of get the the round robin of all the Big 12, the top teams in the Big 12, Iowa State actually has the best um, resume when you round robin all these teams together, really. They've got wins over Baylor, TCU, Texas, Kansas State. I mean, like, TCU, they're my seven team. Kansas State, they're my eight team. Texas, they're my nine team. Baylor's my 11 team. And you've beaten all four of those teams. I have to place you ahead of them. So, and then can't they, they're alone, uh, or one of their two losses in, in the, the Big 12 this season, two point loss on the road at Kansas. So, uh, tough to really penalize you there. Both of their uh, conference losses have come by, by two points. And in this conference, that says a lot to me. So, they're my top team out of the Big 12 in my top 12. 
Um, they they start the the run on four straight Big 12 teams in a row, and I, I just want the games to matter. That's why I've got TCU where I've got TCU because they did beat Kansas State. Um, but I just kind of see how these teams perform when you round robin them all together. And Iowa State has the the best of all the teams that are in my top 12. They've beaten all four of the Big 12 teams that are here. So that is why they are number six on my list. Next up, it is a team that is not making headlines. And that is a good thing when you play in the conference that you play in. That is the Virginia Cavaliers. They check in at number five, six uh, spot bump. And they just kind of stay steady in, in what's really been a bum ACC this year. You look at... Um, even though they're not the number one team in the the ACC standings right now, um, that actually that goes to Clemson, the the Clemson Tigers, who are currently sitting at nine and one and continuing to chug along in the ACC. But you look at the the winning streak right now. Virginia's on a five game winning streak in conference. They're seven and two in the ACC. They've picked up wins over Syracuse, North Carolina, on the road at Wake Forest, on the road against Florida State, and at home against Virginia Tech. But the impressive thing to me is that all of these wins have come between 7 and 10 points, which may not seem like a lot. It's a good win, right? But it may not seem like a lot. But the way that Virginia plays, you got to kind of grade their point differential on a little bit of a curve here because of the pace at which they play. They are the third slowest team in terms of pace in the entire country. And as a result of that, winning by 7 to 10 points really is like winning by 10 to to 14 points every single time out in my eyes. So I I think from that lens, I look at almost all of these as double digit, quote unquote, double digit wins because of the the pace at which Virginia plays. It's tough to come back from down seven against Virginia because you the clock just gets chewed up at the degree that it does. So that's why I've got Virginia bumping up to five. They continue to not make headlines, and that is a good thing. All right, number four. This is a team that actually lost. A lot of the top teams lost over the, over the, the past week. Um, but a team that lost, and it is Houston. They are my number four team in the top 12. They dip below UCLA, who is my number three team, just because their loss from over the weekend was worse. Um, but a one-point loss at home against Temple. Nearly had the comeback in this one, and they would have held serve um, a little bit higher in my rankings at three. But that's a quad three loss against Temple at home. It's weird. This is a team that very well could be undefeated still and the last undefeated standing. You blew a double-digit lead against Alabama at home back in December, and then this one just inexplicable at home against Temple in a a game that had a 20-point spread. So bad loss for Houston, but um, just because of the way that some other teams have played, they kind of hold and only take a one-spot drop in my rankings here. But that is a quad three loss. I mentioned UCLA is my number three team in the top 12, even though they did lose over the weekend. It's a game that I kind of thought they would lose, too. Um, I, I, I had bet on Arizona in this game just because they were the home team in this matchup. It was a competitive game back and forth. UCLA had leads. Arizona had leads. Um, but ultimately, Arizona pulls away in the end, and I'm not going to penalize. I think three was actually probably the toughest spot 
to to rank because it's like, all right, how much do I penalize UCLA and Houston for losing? How much do I reward Virginia for winning? But it's not against great teams. What about these Big 12 teams? Are one of them worthy of the number three spot in the country? But ultimately, I settled on UCLA, who holds serve at number three. Uh, I just I didn't feel it was right to penalize them for losing to a, a good team in Arizona. And I'm, I'm really not going to penalize them until losing becomes a trend. Um, I, I look at the rest of their schedule. If you lose to some of these other teams, okay, then we're going to have to start shuffling you around. But if, you're lost to, if your only loss in the Pac-12 comes to Arizona on the road, it's going to be tough to, to do that. And listen, these two teams are going to play again to close out the regular season um, in the Pac-12, and I, I will be picking UCLA in all likelihood. I, if I were to get out ahead of myself a, a month and a half away. So I, I still believe in UCLA as a team that can get to the Final Four in a sport that is so depleted at the point guard position, they've got one of the best in Tiger Campbell. So uh, I still like UCLA, and I'm going to roll with them here as my number three team. Number two is the Purdue Boilermakers, who take a three-spot jump. They've got just one loss this season at 19-1, tied for the fewest in college basketball this year, and it is the fewest of any power conference team. Um, Their past week, um, they won by three at home against Maryland, a little bit more, a little closer than I would have liked, but still a win nonetheless. But then you, and again, Minnesota sucks, but... Holding a team under 40 points on their home floor is worth acknowledging, especially for a team that has had defensive issues in years past. They beat uh, the breaks off of Minnesota 61 to 39. So good win there for Purdue. Um, and then really the, the margin of victory is the only thing that's holding them off of being the number one team. Um, which I will get to in a second. But Zach Eady playing really well. Of course, he is the front runner for the National Player of the Year. 22, 13, and three blocks is, are his averages in his last five games. And that leads me into my number one team. They've been my number one team now for two weeks in a row. They hold serve, and that is the Alabama Crimson Tide, a flawless 7-0 and in the SEC. They've got a home game against Mississippi State tonight. Um... They just continue to run through teams. They've won every single of these seven SEC games by at least 11 points. 21 points is the average margin of victory that they have in conference play so far. Pick up back-to-back road wins at Vandy, at Missouri. I mean, they they crush Missouri. 21-point win against the number six offense in the country. They held them to 64 points in that one. So... I, I'm just continuing to be impressed by this team. Listen, I'm not necessarily surprised that they're 7-0. and Would I have guessed that they would have a loss by now in conference? Yeah, I would have guessed they're probably 6-1 and in the conference up to this point. But it's the way that they're beating these teams. They're blowing out everybody. I mean, you look at some of these scores at halftime, and the games are over at that point. They've built up a 15-20 point lead at halftime. So... They continue to win in all sorts of ways, whether it's defensively, whether it's offensively. I mean, you look at what they've done in SEC play. This is an Alabama team that has really buckled down defensively. They had some poor defensive outputs leading into conference play, allowed 88 to Memphis and then 90 to Gonzaga. But this is a league that's got some, some top 25 offenses, some good offenses in it. 
and Alabama has held every single team that they've played in conference under 70 points, and that's going to win you a lot of basketball games when you can shoot the way that you can and when you play at the pace that you play at. Bama currently the number 13 offense in the country, according to Ken Palm, and number five defense right now. And the defensive improvement is probably the most significant part to this puzzle right now. Um, a little update, a, a Man Crush Miller update here on Brandon Miller for you. 15-8 and eight in the win against Missouri. Um, but he had no turnovers in that game. Also was 3-8 of eight from 3. You know, it, it's weird because you, you hear this all the time with Bama quarterbacks and, and really just the Heisman conversation in general is that if you are a Heisman caliber quarterback, sometimes you sit out fourth quarters and that is why you don't win Heismans is because your stats aren't up to maybe one of the big 12 guys who has uh, who plays all four quarters um, and plays in some of these ridiculous shootouts every single game. You're almost a prisoner to your defense at that point, but I'm starting to get that way with Brandon Miller. He may end up not winning player of the year. And again, Zach Eady is the favorite right now, and rightfully so. But Brandon Miller may be out of the the conversation or held back in the conversation because of the fact that they are blowing out so many teams, and it's it's leading to him sitting out for for chunks of games where he could pad his stats and and put up bigger point totals but you look at uh he's played uh 20 in the 20s in two conference games so far also had a 30 minute out outing i mean a lot of these guys that are playing that are in the conversation for player of the year they're getting 35 37 minutes every single night and it's because they play in a lot closer games but bama hasn't played in close games so i'm wondering if it's going to hold brandon miller back at a certain point but this season, he continues to be the best NBA prospect in college basketball. He's shooting 47% from three this year. And it's not like, oh, he's only shooting it two, three times a game. No, he's shooting seven threes per game as well. So he continues to be one of the most impressive players in the entire sport. Currently leads the SEC in, in three-pointers and is uh, in three-pointers made and is also third in attempts as well. And the percentage is obviously top-notch. He leads the SEC. So he is... Um, and, and he's ninth in all of college basketball too. So he has been my favorite player to watch in the sport and the reason why I've got Alabama as my number one team now for consecutive weeks. They end up number two in the AP poll, but they do pick up 23 first place votes after, I believe they didn't receive any the week before. Let me check that real quick. Yep, did not receive any the week before. And now all of a sudden they are getting about a third of the first place votes. And I think we may continue to see that uh, ad week by week. It would not surprise me if we somehow see Alabama overthrow Purdue from the number one spot in the AP poll, even if Purdue doesn't end up losing a game. So, all right, that is going to do it for us here on Basketball U. We will be back either tomorrow or Friday. We will have a ranking of all of the Big 12 SEC Challenge matchups. I'm really looking forward to that this weekend. So we will rank all of those for you and get you ready for what should be a great weekend in college basketball. Be sure to rate, comment, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and tell all of your college hoops loving friends as well. And we'll talk to you later this week. 